you know, wars and conflict and violence are not natural disasters, right? They are man-made, and which means that they can be man-unmade. <laughs> it's, if we wanted to stop it, we could. It's a decision. I would say that this really wasn't our war, and it was a bad call. It was a horrifically bad call. That was Salam Ragi Andolini of ICANN Peace Network spending some time with me to talk about the crisis in Yemen. Salam has an interesting perspective as she's traveled the world and worked in post-conflict countries. On this episode of What in the World, Salam breaks down the crisis in Yemen and exactly what's going on, who's involved, what they want, and what America's role is in the crisis. Sanam also takes us through the extensive role that women are playing in Yemen to help with the humanitarian crisis, to negotiate the terms of their protection, and to ultimately fight for a seat at the table. Stay tuned. You're listening to What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia. It's your favorite show that breaks down international affairs, global politics, foreign policy, whatever you want to call it. And we try to help it make sense to your everyday life and help you understand why it's just important to you. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. For this conversation, we'll be going back to the Middle East, issues particularly related to Yemen. And if you have listened to the show, you know that we've discussed Syria. So you'll see some parallels with the Syrian crisis here as well with Yemen. I'll admit, like many folks here in the United States, I had no idea what was going on in Yemen. You would read about bombings, you'd hear about elections and coups and violence, but just never really understood what was going on. And what caught my attention recently was earlier this month, a school bus full of small children was bombed by Saudi airstrikes and I I was heartbroken and, and I started wondering what in the world is going on in Yemen why are small children being killed why are women being killed why are people in general being killed in Yemen and what does America have to do with all of this so today's guest is going to give us all of the answers she's going to give us the 101 or 201 in some cases of Yemen what's going on there who are the groups involved and what they want and what America's role is in this situation and why it matters. Sanam Naragi Anderlini, who I am so honored to have here with me. I call you a founding mother. You don't know this, but I called you one of the founding mothers because, and we're going to talk about this, you had an important role in drafting uh, the UN Resolution 1325, which we're going to talk all about. So we have a founding mother on the show, the first. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully Thank you. Not, the, not the last. Um, but what I think is so fascinating about you, Sanam, is that it's not just your personal connection to these issues related to women and peace and security, but it's that you have actually been like involved in writing constitutions and being around women who are writing constitutions and trying to build democracy from the ground up. None of us, no one alive in the United States, really in the world, was a part of the American mm-hmm. constitution it's writing. We weren't we weren't it's at so the funny. table. Yeah. We sort of inherited this document and that's it. You and many others actually get to see a constitution being mm-hmm. framed and written with women at the table. Trying to get women to the table. Trying to get women at the table. You're a lot farther ahead than our founding fathers because I (laughs) doubt that they even tried to to get women at the table. But Sanam has made her way around the United Nations. She has a stellar background, again, working with women in peace and security. She is a professor at Georgetown University. She's written a book, and I want to make sure that we have the name of your book here so people can go out and learn more about women, peace, and security. So her book is Women Building Peace, What They Do, 
and Why It Matters, written in 2007. And she's going to give us some of that, I'm sure, here uh, in our in our conversation. So you may have seen her on Al Jazeera, on BBC. She's written many articles for Ms. Magazine, for Islamic Monthly, the Foreign Affairs, and on and on and on. So Sanam, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank like, you. Thank you. Uh, so we start the show with personal stories mm-hmm. because foreign policy, I believe, is about human stories because humans are involved. <laughs> indeed, indeed, that's very true. Yeah. So Sanam, how did you get to this world of women, peace and security? And was there something in your life growing up? So you're, you're born in Iran and I know that your family came here when you were young. So I had, I'm guessing that had a yes, impact. So, um, so I, th- I mean, and it, you know, the short answer is that why is foreign policy? Why does it matter? Because what we, when you're sitting in Washington and you go to the think tanks and they're talking policy and deciding should we do X or should we do, you know, who do we support? And it has direct impact on other people's lives, right? Should we support this coup or this leader? Or, you know, do we sell these weapons and make a, you know, a bunch of money for this company? Over there, it's people like you and I, mm-hmm. and um, and and all of a sudden, their lives are in a tailspin because they didn't really understand what happened. So, so that to me is one of the sort of places, where, and I sit at the nexus of that in a sense on a personal level because I'm Iranian. I was 11 when the Iranian Revolution happened in 1978, 79, and we were kind of excited. We thought, you know, there was a dictatorial, authoritarian state, and and I remember asking my mother what do we want? And mm-hmm. she said, we want a democratic and just government. And I was like, that she good said today. that to you at yeah, 11. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Let's go. Right. And it turned out that, well, there were lots of forces out there that were against the Shah at the time, the monarchy. But once he left, nobody really figured out what they were for. And so all of these different, you know, there were nationalist parties and Islamist parties, and all of them were like, wait a second, what next? What's, what's going to fill the vacuum? And the vacuum got filled by pretty much the most organized, which were the with the Islamists because they had the network of the mosques to to convey their messages, and and also the most ruthless. And this is this is a you know I we saw this I saw this when I was eleven years old, and I fast forward to the Arab Revolution, you know Arab, Arab Spring, uh, or you know they called it Arab Spring, but it, it turned out to be pretty uh, pretty much of an Arab winter in some of the countries. And rem- I remember as these demonstrations were happening, whether it was in Yemen or Egypt or Syria, at the bottom of my you know, the pit of my stomach, I was like, be careful, because mm. it, it's the day after, right? And this idea that, you know, we're going to go waving flags to get rid of a dictator. And there's lots of them, again, coming back to the US, there are lots of American organizations and US government money in support of those types of initiatives as well. We've seen it in different places, but it's really about the day after. And the day after, once you leave a vac, once you create, once if you're the not dust organized, settles. yeah, once, and, and even within, in the midst of the dust in the air, uh, the bigger particles, you know, the ones that, that are, as I said, are organized and the ones that are ruthless are the ones that will seize power. And then you've got to be very careful about what happens the second day and the decade and, you know, whether it becomes a Syria war, right? That's kind of been the trajectory, in a sense, of my, of what I experienced at the age of 11. And then the inspiration and part of the reason why I got involved in this work was South Africa. Again, age 19, 20, you know, I was reading about Mandela and, and, um, <laughs> and actually as a kid, there was a song that came out. There was a pop song called that I didn't even know who Mandela was, but the the verse was free Nelson Mandela. I don't know whether you remember. You're probably too young to remember. No, I remember. And, you know, and we were teenagers and we we're singing this <laughs> in England. And it was, you know, apartheid and understanding and then learning how South Africa decided to avoid violence. And 
participate in a national process of reconciliation and transformation. And I was like, if they can do it, why shouldn't other countries be able to do it? Absolutely. And so that's really been the driving force for my the kind of work that I've been interested in. And what I didn't mention is that Sanam is the co-founder and executive director of the International Civil Society Action Network called ICANN. And ICANN provides a lot of training and programming and support and grants to organizations mainly run by women in these sort of hotbeds um, mm-hmm. uh, around the world. And that is such an important role because in these countries, I'm assuming there's no Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's no Carnegie. There's no Ford mm-hmm. that's going to grant them money. It's yeah. I mean, they, they so number one, um, I became interested in women. I was interested in who on the ground is doing this kind of work. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we had a meeting in 1998 when I was in England, and we invited 50 women from around the world in conflict areas, and one after another. There's, it was so extraordinary to have from Guatemala to South Africa to Palestine, having a common thread of the women's experience of what it's like, regardless of whether you're black or white or Christian or Protestant or Jewish, right. how they perceived it, how they got involved. And then this drive for nonviolence, a commitment to nonviolence, and a commitment to seeing beyond the past and into the future. Right. So and that that really um, inspired me. And I thought if they can do it or if people like this exist in the world. Yeah. Um, I want to support them. Yeah. And, and I often come back to this because so many of the women that I continue to work with have had tremendous personal loss. You know, there I have a colleague from Sri Lanka and her son went missing. He was in the army and he's gone. He went missing. She took that pain and turned it into something extraordinary because she said, I need to know who the other side is. And mm. she led a group of mothers into the jungle to talk to the wow. Tamil tigers, who were at the time one of the most notorious guerrilla forces, terrorist forces in the world. And she, they just walked it, you know, they just went as moms right. to go talk to these guys and treat them as human beings, treat Correct. them as... And, and I, you know, to this day, I'm like, I don't know if that happened to somebody in my family or my... Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even, I can't even imagine it with my own kids, but how would I react? And And this is, that's... That's the power of these women. They are extraordinary, extraordinary Well, characters. I would imagine that when you've had situations like that happen to you where your children go missing, you're fearless. You're just like, well, there's nothing worse that can happen to me if I've lost my child. And in a way, it's, all, it's often motivated by wanting that death or that, that tragedy to not just be left at that. They want, they want something good to come out of the, the legacy. Out of, of the legacy, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And so let's, let's talk about, you know, you talked about how in 98 you brought these women together and you heard these amazing stories. So let's talk about this, this constitution, this UN 1325, um, which is amazing. And and for people who don't know, I'll have you explain it. But uh, for listeners who don't follow the UN, uh, UN 1325 is a big deal in the international affairs world because it, it seals the deal on the role of women in peace and security and conflict and basically says, we deserve a seat at the table. We're going to have a seat at the table. And this is why <laughs> it matters. Like, right. Like how you stated in your in your book. So what was that experience like for you? In a way, random. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the sense that, you know, we had this meeting. It was it, the whole idea that we need to give voice and vocabulary, literally. Like what is what is how do we what do we call these this this work that's going on? and parameters and, and, and sort of form and shape to, to the work of these women. That was that came bubbling up. And then out of that was like, well, we need this to be recognized 
in the policy circles. Well, what does that mean? Well, you, we need to get a resolution and, <laughs> you know, and we need a campaign. And so, so what we did was I, I, I had an amazing colleague at the time who was my boss, uh, Eugenia Pisa Lopez, who, who now works at the UN. And so we designed a campaign. It was called Women Building Peace from the Village Table to the um, Village Council to the Negotiating Table. Nice. And it had four different pillars. We said, you know, we want to get this inroad into the policy sphere. Uh, we want to make sure that we have partnership with organizations around the world that are, in, especially the ones that are in war zones. Uh, we wanted a public element to get the public involved. And at the time, is long before social media stuff, um, it was a post- postcard campaign. We had postcards. <laughs> oh, sign wow. in and send, you know. It was, it was kind of, I think they, they sent like 50,000 postcards. Oh, wow. What we did was we went and consulted in war zones to say, if as women we want to have a voice and we want to say something, what's mm-hmm. our demand mm-hmm. to the to the Security Council, to the Secretary General of the of the UN, and to world leaders? And those consultations kind of they came from everywhere, and we distil- we distilled it, and that became the basis for like almost the skeleton of what the resolution was also about. But it, but it was kind of around things like we want to be at the peace table. We want to make sure that women's rights are protected phys- and, and, and women get physical protection in refugee settings. We want to make sure that in, we have a women in peacekeeping forces, not only because they should have the same opportunities as men, but also because we were already seeing the abuse, sexual abuse For sure. of I've women heard, and kids. I've heard about this by, by UN peacekeeping. So, so these were a lot of the elements of, of what we were talking about. And essentially it was like, let's get a Security Council resolution None of us can do it on our own. So let's collaborate and let's figure this out together. But essentially what we did was we just invited governments to come and talk to us. You know, so, so it was these just these ways where you're like, this is what we need to do. That's the guy. How do we get them? How do we invite them? How do we talk to them and make them come along with us? And I always say this is like, like my 101 to anybody doing advocacy work. Hold the pen. Do the first draft. You be the one that writes the document as you want it. I remember working with the UN in Somalia and we were, and it was in the middle of negotiations and we, you know, people had said stuff and we put it on charts and stuff. And then we were coming back and typing it up. And I was typing up and, and I remember saying, you know, it was 700, we're going to have 700 men and women in the constituent assembly. And, and a colleague of mine said, well, you can just say 700 people. I said, no, no, no. Men and women, because the minute you take out women, women, people becomes men. Well, if we ever write a constitution or have to rewrite (laughs) our constitution here in America, I hope that you get invited to be one of the pen holders, (laughs) because I feel like we'd be in a good place. So let's jump into this crisis. Um, You're sort of one of the many projects at ICANN. Uh, where where you lead the organization. So the crisis in Yemen has been called the silent crisis, the secret war, the worst humanitarian crisis, the Somalia of the Middle East, so many other just really tough, uh, really negative phrases. And recorded to date, there have been 10,000 deaths, 40,000 wounded, 90% of the food is imported into the country because... There's no food. And, and I, as I understand it, and you can enlighten us, uh, it sounds like the Saudis are controlling the poor areas where the food comes in and blocking food from coming in, which is exasperating the problems with famine and cholera and all of these other issues. So there's 25 million people who live in, in Yemen. 60% of the population is facing famine issues and 600,000 are estimated to be affected with cholera. It is not a pretty, it's awful. It's it's not pretty. I learned in my research as well um, that Yemen at one point was ruled by a monarchy mm-hmm. in the north 
and to the south were the British. The British are everywhere. <laughs> of course. But I, we're, this show's not about yeah. the British. But <laughs> the British were, were, were in the south. So it has the elements of colonialism and foreign entities occupying a space that doesn't belong to them. Which is every every other show, where, whether it's Syria or me, Myanmar, like you said, after independence, after that moment when the dust settles and the colonizers are gone and there's been an election or something, there's some long-term ruler who just sticks around. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot. Yemen, it was the case, and this all came to a head in 2011 during the Arab Spring. So can you just talk to us about what Yemen's Arab Spring was like and who the people were that were involved in that? Sure. So it, it was a really interesting moment because Yemen is one of the poorest, I mean, even before this, the, the war, one of the poorest countries in the world, next door to a pretty wealthy country, right? Which is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Now, what happened was that you, you you know, we had the Arab revolutions kind of sparked by Tunisia. And then it kind of, you see, you see everybody being inspired by each other. And in Yemen, again, there had been rumblings of this going on. And there had been, you know, street protests and, and a lot of young people, a lot of women. I mean, when you look at the images on, on you know, going back in the media and, and especially on YouTube, it's amazing. Even though they're completely covered, they're out there. They're, yeah, it's it's really yeah, really on these streets. Yeah, I saw some pictures. Yeah, yeah, and so so again, the demand is for better, basically, end of corruption, better governance, you know, better economic opportunities, and 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 so forth. And and Yemen is highly highly weaponized. It's like people have it's it's one of the most armed countries in the world just because they've had wars and so forth and then and then just the kind of kind of weaponry that, that that's floating around. And with all of these protests there's always that moment where you're like this could break out into war, right? right? And, and some Cuz all of these people have weapons and if somebody's Exactly. And and there's every so many every day. Yeah. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and how do these the, the anger sparks? And it's like well how do you sort of direct it in a in a nonviolent or trying to mitigate the violence? In the case of Yemen, the demand was to get rid of the president Saleh who'd been there for 30 years and the Saudis and the other smaller Gulf countries that um, kind of looked at this, and they're all monarchies, <laughs> of course, and they're like, wait a second, we're not going to have a toppling of the regime and, and, and so forth in our backyard. So, Meaning the regime that was there for 30 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're not going to let this happen over here, you know, right next door to us um, and have a sort of, you know, d- you know, the idea of having a democratic system. It's like, no, no. <laughs> right, right. Because no, they're no. all like, we operate this way. So who's this little country thinking that they're exactly. going to be the, right. the one democracy in our little region? Yeah. So, 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 you know, so you're, you're on the one hand, you're worried about everything becoming incredibly violent and, and getting out of control. On the other hand, it's like, well, you know, what do we do? And so they carved out a, a bit of a strange solution, but it was the solution was that Salah steps aside. Salah is the, was president, the president that had been the there for yeah. forever. And his deputy, who's all who'd also been around. I mean, it's, it's always the same guy. It's just sort of, you know playing. You know, his deputy would be the sole candidate right. for presidential elections. This would be the equivalent of like the vice president here in the United States being the only name on the ballot in 2019. Exactly. That That's would it. not fly. That would That's not it, work right? in America. And 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 the idea was that okay, so you know, let's so you have this kind of attempt to saying there's this transition of some sort. Mm-hmm. We have this this election, and then we're going to have a national dialogue. Now, nobody really understood what a national dialogue was, but the the, the UN appointed right guy called Jam- Jamal Ben Omar, and he was out there and he was talking to people and so forth. So, so they you know they did that first step of the election, and the new guy was called Hadi, President Hadi. And then when it when they came to developing this national uh, dialogue process, a lot to do with kind of our background in asking for women's involvement, a lot and and very much to do with that the women on the in Yemen had been at the forefront, literally on the front lines and right. on the streets, and they had been demanding at least a minimum 30% representation. 
they ended up having a national dialogue designed where they had 30% of, you know, they had delegations from the different political parties and then from the different tribes and various kind of constellations. But there had to be 30% women mm. in each of those parties. Right. And they had sep- women as a separate group. And then they had young people and, and really trying to make it as representative. representative as possible, right? Now, you can, we, you know, you can go back and forth and say, there were all these problems. Essentially, it was an amazing thing to do in a country. Or even to try to, to do. Try and, I mean, can, can you imagine after you, Yeah, after you've gone through these yeah. protests in 2011 to say, hey, we're going to sit and talk. <laughs> and, like, and we're going to, you know, and we're all, and and by the way, you, you know, and, and they had some very strong extremist kind of Islamist mm. groups like the Salafis who were like, you know, when they were told, look, you, you know, you get to come. But bring thirty uh, percent. Bring, bring th- and they were like, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll bring thirty percent. So let's say they'd have nine people because there are like nine committees that they needed to represent. And they were like, well, you know, actually, um, we had you know thirty percent three women, but they're sick. One's just gone on her honeymoon, and she'll be back in six months' time. And one's just gotten pregnant, and one, you know, there's this. Oh, they're they, playing games. They played all these games. But then they realized that actually, if they don't have those women, then they don't have a. They don't. Oh, their seat at the table and wow. whatever the committee is is empty. So they ended up bringing genius good women, right? Anyway, so they have this process, it goes, they have their discussions, they come up with kind of a, like a blueprint of where the country should go, including that there should be a constitutional committee that is kind of involved in drafting the committee. Lots of shenanigans around who gets to be on the presidential constitutional committee and so forth. Well, it was a committee that was meant to be kind of, rep- again, a smaller representative group that was then meant to sit and do a draft. But getting who got to be in that smaller group was again, a lot of... So who get to hold the, gets to holds the pen is the issue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so meanwhile, the, you know, this leading up to this this conflict, the issue, you know, again, this north-south di- division that you mentioned, there's the, right now, the the war, they kind of clustered around, there's the Houthis, and then and then there's a sort of other side, which is a combination of government and Al-Qaeda and Saudi Arabia and the US and everybody on the other side. But essentially, the, the folks from the south, and especially the Houthis, were very concerned about how the country was going to get, you know, it was like, is it going to be a federal system? Are we going to have states? How many states? What access do we have to resources? And, and so forth. And they were very concerned about some groups wanted it to be just two parts like a two two-sided federal state yeah. and others were like no we want six states right and so and the government and the constitutional drafting committee under the supervision of the president came up with a six six sort of region version okay. and but those six regions that they the ones that would have been dominate you know would have been majority Hutu or from the from the south were the ones that were the poorest that didn't have access to water you know all these things that they had from the beginning said look wait a second we will this is not a-. so the whole thing begins to get to get shaky. The Houthis come start to come in and kind of want to and basically depose the president. And the Houthis are a tribal group? Are they a religious group? Are they a political group? It's a little bit of everything, right? Okay. So so they are a group that they call themselves the Houthis because their leader was somebody called some, Houthi. Some, some, yeah, so exactly. they're named after their leader. So, so th- that, but that's, that's kind of a more modern iteration mm-hmm. of it. Essentially, they are sect of Islam. So Islam is divided between Sunnis and Shias. 85% of the Muslim world are Sunnis. And then within Sun, within the Sunni side, you have lots of different sects and, and you have the more extreme ones like the Wahhabis in South of Saudi Arabia. And then you have the sort of eight, 13 to 15 percent, which are Shias, where the, the dominant state is Iran. But they're not really as coherent. The Houthis in, in, in Yemen have been there for a thousand years. They <laughs> they are a sect that has been there longer than most long of Long before they long, were Houthis. Long, long, long. And long before Saudi Arabia existed. And long <laughs> before whatever, right? And so they're kind of, that's who they are. And then they've got this sort of Houthi labeling now because it's, it's it was their most le- recent leadership and, and, and so on. And they're from the South. But they get rid of 
the the president, and and at that point, the president flees to Saudi. So, so this is the deputy, the guy. This, who this the is the number two, right? Yeah. He then flees to Saudi Arabia. Comes to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, was really upset with the U.S for negotiating the Iran deal mm. because the Saudis are scared of the Iranians and they keep kind of sort of equate that they're like, you know, we are the we yeah. are the regional powerhouse yeah, who yeah. the hell are these guys and whatever, right? And again, it's a bit of a false myth, but maybe that's for another time. <laughs> but anyway, so the, so the guy the guy goes to Saudi Arabia and the Saudis come to the Security Council and basically get the green light from the entire Security Council to bomb Yemen. And so let's let's do a quick 101. So the Security Council has five permanent members. The five permanent members are US, uh, United Kingdom, France, China and Russia. Russia, yes. Okay. That, so yes. those are the five five permanent. And then there are 10 other countries that get voted on for two years. And they're the temporary one. But the, the P5, as they're called, the permanent yep. five, if they veto a resolution, then things don't happen. Saudi Arabia comes along and the Security Council, you know, the US, the UK, all of them green light the, the bombing, Saudis. right? And and the Saudis are, oh, it's a couple of days. It'll we'll be, be over. It'll be, we'll over, be good. Right? It's a couple of days becomes a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks. Couple of, and, and we are where we are. It's this disaster of a war. And there is no coherence, even even kind of, I think, a month or two into the war, when it was during the Obama administration, it was like, what's the strategy? Yeah. What are we doing? Why are we? There was no real answer. And so is it the Saudis? And we're, we're going to talk about. And the, it's called the coalition. The coalition, yeah, right. The coalition, so these yeah. the Saudi-led coalition is yeah. what I, I keep seeing in all of the stuff that I'm reading. So in terms of that region, so the Saudis, is it just that they're afraid that Yemen will turn into like an Afghanistan or someplace that's going to be a threat because they're literally on the border. So Yemen borders Saudi, yeah, Saudi they, Arabia yeah. right along the yeah. bottom. And, it's, got, and as I say, it's the poorest. It's it's yeah. the poorest area. What so, do they? So it's a, it's a few things because. Um, so on the one hand, when the the national dialogue process was going on, and it was all televised, right? Everybody, wow. yeah, it was a little bit shaky to be in Saudi Arabia, the richer next door neighbor, and watch your you know poor, extremely poor cousin having this very open, vibrant debate with women, and right. So so the idea that that Yemen could emerge and become so it's competition. What was yeah they didn't they they definitely didn't like that part. The second thing is that in, in a lot of what you'll read they give they present it as if oh Iran was in it was in Yemen and Saudi doesn't want is afraid of Iranian presence on its borders and so but actually it's the reverse it's that the Houthi problem goes is much more deep seated I mean they as I say they they've been there for a long time and you know thousand years and they were asserting their own kind of independence and right. and, and they're like this is our determination land. exactly yeah, yeah. this is our land and, and we we want to have a say in it once the war started. Essentially, they were like, okay, who's going to help us? Because there's an embargo on, you know, food and and weapons and everything. And the Iranians were the ones who were like, okay, we can we can help ah. you a little bit. But but the this and this is also the other interesting thing that it's like, well, if they've been embargoed and people can't get out and food can't get in, how on earth is it possible for massive weapon parts? I mean, getting right. in, right? right. I mean, so so the the whole question of where the extent to which Iran is helping is one of those things that they're definitely have some role, but at the same time, it's unclear exactly what that role is. And then compared to what the Saudi side is doing, I mean, from the from the UN reports and things, you know, two thirds of the deaths and and the destruction is by the bombings that are happening. Yeah, and that's where the U. US, the UK and France, not only they're selling weapons to the Saudis, but we were the US was literally fueling the planes. Hmm. So so this this it's like if you could just stop fueling those planes, maybe those kids wouldn't, you know. So yeah. so it's it's we are very deeply embedded in the war. And in the last I mean the UK's weapon sales went up something like five hundred fold wow. since in, in, in So two those years. weapons are coming from 
Oh yeah, yeah. There's the, the, yeah. the under the um, Trump administration, they just signed a mm-hmm. three hundred and fifty billion dollar ten year yeah. weapons deal with Saudi Arabia, of which a hundred and ten billion dollars was immediate weapons. Yeah. going over. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> if I understand correct, so you had mentioned Al Qaeda mm-hmm. is in the southern part mm-hmm. of Yemen. It's it's all over now. It's all over, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in Yemen's case, yeah, it, they have a clear presence mm-hmm. there. So from the United States' perspective, the concern is Al-Qaeda. It was. It was. It well, was. it was. But, but now it's... But that's why it's, the whole thing is so messy, because Al-Qaeda is, again, ideologically and from a religious standpoint, they are on polar opposites to where the, where the Houthis would be, mm. right? So, and they have been getting support from Saudi Arabia. I mean, very like their guys are sitting in Saudi. They, so they come. probably our weapons are going over to Al Qaeda. I mean, one might. I, I mean, mean, I would just say A <laughs> plus B equals C usually. Yeah. But so, I'm just so we've gonna say. you know th- this is one of the things that, that Al Qaeda was a relative. It didn't have much popular support, and it didn't have much inroads into society. With the breakout of the war between oh, yeah. what between the the sort of the the Houthis coming into the places where there are Sunni populations, and the Sunnis saying, okay, we don't like these guys. Who's there to help us? It's Al Qaeda. So that's enabled it. Meanwhile, all the weapons and, and just they've, they've just spread. So, yeah, de facto, the U.S. and Al Qaeda are on the same side and they have become much more influential. Al Qaeda mm-hmm. has become influential. Mm-hmm. OK, so we have the Houthis who want to keep their land. Well, not only keep the land, but exercise what I actually think is rightfully sort of like self-determination. There, Yeah, there's an element of self-determination. And then there's there's an element of overreach as well, because, they, of course, they want to take over as much their as their own well, thing. As, yeah, well, exactly. there are other diverse stakeholders yeah, exactly. and groups inside exactly. the country. You have Saudi Arabia. Yeah. He's like this country down here in the south. We're concerned about what they're doing. But they're also getting support from the United States by way of weapons to deal with the issue in Yemen. And so I guess my my question is, why isn't the United States sending military? Like, oh, because we, we don't want to. We don't so want America. We don't have America. We don't ha- we don't know that we have a military presence yes. in Yemen. So we're sort of relying on our ally. I would say that this really wasn't our war. This is this is it, it was almost like it was like an easy pass to Saudi to give them something to, you know, in, as I say, like it happened right at the same time as the Iran deal. It was like, you yeah. Know, and it was a bad call. It was a horrifically bad call. Under to, the Obama administration. Uh, under the, mm-hmm. And then to enable it to continue and continue and continue. Because if the U.S. and the U.K. shut the tap on weapons, even today, even today, it's like you shut the tap. Those guys can't do it on their own. So this is a this is a decision that we as a country have to make because who are we i mean it was the, it was a bunch of school kids in a in a bus and and then that was that was earlier this week we are killing civilians over and over and over again in all of these places either yeah. directly or indirectly through through the weapons that we're giving other people. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the role of women mm-hmm. in all of this because this is your the focus of your organization. So one of the the cool things I've discovered about the Yemeni crisis is like one of the positive positive things that came out of this this research. But I discovered a wonderful woman named Tawakol Karman. Mm-hmm. Tawakol Karman. Uh, she's the first Muslim woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for her work on using nonviolence, mm-hmm. um, nonviolent protest to protect. Yemeni women to ensure that they were included and had a seat at the table and had that pen in their Mm -hmm. hand and were participating in all of the activities that would bring democracy to Yemen. Women are often left out of these conversations. What has been the impact Mm -hmm. of 
this crisis on women living in Yemen? For me, one of the things is that we can look at these places and see just the negativity, or you can kind of put on another pair of glasses and say, okay, in all of this bad stuff, what's good? What's going on? Because life carries on. And in the case of Yemen, um, Tawakkul was certainly one of the kind of street leaders. She was she was a young woman and she was out there you know, with, with everybody and so forth. She was a member, and she's, I think she still is a member of the Islam Party, which is the Muslim, kind of the equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood, more moderate version. Of, and, and so she was a political character as well. But she was recognized, and the Nobel Peace Prize does this, they, they're they recognized for the potential that they have. And it's giving that extra platform and kind of giving them the the, the, the wings in a way. The political boost, I'm sure, too. Exactly. Yeah. And in a way, she was, so she had that presence. And what happened with the National Dialogue was that you see an incredible wealth of women emerging. And and, and I, I, I've worked with many of them. Some of them are long-term activists who were the kind of pounding the the, the pavements and, and, and the knocking on doors and insisting on that minimum 30% at the table and there were lawyers and, and so forth. It is, you know, there's one uh, one organization right now that we are hoping to support with with a small grant and they've been in the port area of Hodaida, which is like the last bastion of where food food and and, yeah. research, and there was a whole question of um, is it going to get blockaded and, and you know, who's and this group of women have been negotiating free, you know, sort of passage of humanitarian assistance. Bunch of, I mean, it's, it's the, the ICRC's pulled, the, the, the Red Cross has pulled out, right? The, yeah. The, you know, it's like the, the international community just is gone. Is gone. It's these women who are doing it. You know, this is what you, when you begin to kind of lift that first layer of war and just ask the questions, you begin to see this other world that exists. Right. And, and, and it's dominated by women, whether whether they're organized, whether, you know, as in organizations or whether they form organizations yeah. or network. Or, they're every day, they're, they're at it. They're at it. They're at it. And they're in the face of the, yeah. vi- the most violent of yeah. men saying yeah. let this food pass through here let this aid get through yeah. here and they use and I, and I thought this is one of the things that what I love about this work is that it's not about sometimes people say oh you know you say women are peacemakers that's essentialist I'm like it's not that we were born that way it's that you look at yourself and these women look at themselves and they're like what's my power Right. I, I don't have a gun. I don't have a bazooka I don't have an M- <laughs> so what else how else are they meant to kind of get what they need and right. it's through vo- through words right. and through building trust and through, and negotiating and ne- always through negotiating yeah. always through and, and 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 the other part that's always that I've, I'm always struck by is that when we bring it to the international space they always think that we're being idealistic and we really don't understand how complicated it is like you talk to the women they're the most practical pragmatic get it done Logical. step by step just, just do just, it just do it you know what we see in all of the conflict areas that I've unfortunately been familiar with over the last 20 years it's that the minute a war breaks out the men are either forced into fighting or the first ones to be killed or forced to flee you know they and or they go off to, to try and find jobs somewhere else and more and over time you see these societies becoming women-led now within that context of, of as you know women you know having to cope and look after people they will use some of them be, are incredibly brave and they be, they become the kind of activists that we support um, and as you say get involved in the politics and get involved in the negotiations and put themselves out there and often they are targeted there is no doubt Right, because they're challenging everybody right, and, and calling them out. So you have a sort of a subset that have that immense courage and bravery to, to do that. And then you get a lot of women who are just trying to cope. And so the husband's gone or he's dead or whatever. They don't, you know, they've got the kids to look after. They're often left with the elderly and the sick and the disabled and, and, and so forth. Again, it becomes a question of what do you do, mm-hmm. right? In in Nepal, where I was working in, the, in 2007, 2008, you know, we saw them coming from the rural areas where the war had hit, coming into the city centers. This happens a lot 
again, they come into the urban areas and they get involved in the whatever the strip clubs or the, right, the yeah, prostitution. Whatever, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it just becomes a question of survival. I'm curious to know: Are there organizations working with men to address sort of the shifting role of women, uh, not only in the community but in the home? Because, like you said, these women are out there doing their thing and and becoming self sufficient. And when you do that, you actually you get woke, right? You're mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, if I'm working this hard, I must have a seat in government. I want to be represented. I want my fair share of the pie. I want to be paid. I mm-hmm. want protection. I want mm-hmm. all of these things. So that can come with backlash from men who are not used to that. So are there organizations <laughs> that are like working to help men understand the shifting dynamic in their community? The, the, yeah, there, there are. And definitely that one of the things that we see in post-conflict settings is that the levels of domestic violence yeah. go up. Yeah, yeah. And it's partly to do with, I mean, it's partly it's to do with the guys coming back from war and they yeah, bring yeah. trauma and, and whatever in it. But sometimes it has a lot has to do with, yeah, you sure you did that during the war, but now you got to go back to the kitchen because I'm... And she's like, I ain't going back to that damn kitchen. That's I got a right. meeting at six o'clock. We got to talk about the Constitution tomorrow. Right, right exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so it's in... In Afghanistan, one of our partners who has been, he, she'd been a school teacher and she was really well regarded in, in the community. A C- couple of years ago, she said, you know, I really want to work. And we helped her design a, a, a program. She had like a series of seven workshops from four different communities, the village chief, the Friday prayer, so the, the, the mm-hmm, priest, mm-hmm. you know, the a school teacher and two young guys. And each session, they would have a different set of conversations. And the first one was around, what does it like to be a man in the middle of war growing up? How, what do you feel? How do you, you know... Are you scared? And the thing is, nobody ever asks the men. And so she came back and she said, you know, these guys started crying because nobody would ever talked to them. And they felt human. And and I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I'm like getting teary. Exactly. exactly. You know. And then, she, and then you know, apparently after the third session, the, the Friday prayer, the, the priests were saying, well, we need to go. The imams were saying, we need to go and talk about this in our sermons. And so and the conversations were about violence, but including about violence against women and the, and the status of women and how you treat your girls. And, and so they, they start preaching about this stuff and treating wow. preaching about nonviolence wow. and res- resolving conflict nonviolently. She, I was talking to her a couple months ago and she said, she said, you know, one of those uh, imams who came to our first session, he was really conservative. And in their, in their society, you don't see men carrying their children. It's like they, they say that's it's like if a man's carrying a baby, it's like, oh, he's a, he's being a woman. But after this, um, after these workshops, she, he said to me that he picked up his baby daughter and he walked out into the street in front of his neighbors kind of proudly. Yeah, proudly. And, and within a week, all the other guys were doing it. And Ugh. I was like, you know, this this, the is, this is it. This power is, of women, the power of women to bring out the good in the guys. Yeah. And that's really a lot of I mean, I'm so proud of that. And I, I have to tell you, all the money that we have spent in Afghanistan, it's like we're talking about a trillion dollars. This work was $10,000. Right. And it's about, it's to do with finding people who are trusted in their own communities, who care. I'm I'm like, it's, uh, it's that, it's the dilemma. It's, you know, you have those who care for power and those who have the power of caring. Mm. And I'm like, you find the people who have the power and you give them the tools, the tools and just the advice and the, do the magic. And they, the magic. Thank you for for walking us through that. Um, I think I have a definitely a greater appreciation. I think for the personal narratives and the personal power of of the women who are out there doing a really hard job in h- tough circumstances. Again, when you've got ten thousand people dying yeah. in cholera and there's no food coming in, to have the audacity to yeah. stand up and say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Let's get things in order and come together as yeah. a country and yeah. finally be the country we can. That takes a lot of balls. Balls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's the thing. I, I've, I've often, I'm like, 
Why is it that courage comes with balls exactly? It comes yeah, with a woman. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, courage comes yeah. with women. Yeah. So, um, so he, let's bring it back to the states here uh, as we as we wrap up. So there was a, a bipartisan resolution in the United States um, just a few months ago, and uh, the resolution, the attempt was to end the U.S. involvement in Yemen by way of providing ammunition and funds to the Saudis who are then bombing folks who are innocent civilians, children, women, men, etc. Uh, so it failed in the Senate. Uh, and so then, as you mentioned earlier, we have sent billions and billions of dollars worth of ammunition to the Saudis, and they continue to wreak havoc mm-hmm. in Yemen uh, and kill innocent people. So uh, Sanam, what would you what would you like the role for America to be? I mean, we, we didn't get anything done in the Senate. It's It's basically dead, this resolution. So what would what do you should we just leave? Like, what do you what is the proper role of America think, as you see it? You know, Bill Clinton at one point said, what's what's wrong in America can be fixed with what's right in America. And I kind of I'm like, you could apply that same principle to the U.S.'s role in the world. Right. Because whatever you do, the United States is way more powerful than the vast majority of the countries around um, that, that, you know, it, it's just militarily where, you know, I don't know how many times more powerful than the next one. right? And the question is, so, yeah, what can we do? Well, number one, the decision, you know, wars and conflict and violence are not natural disasters. Right. They are man-made and which means that they can be (laughs) (laughs) man-unmade. If we wanted to stop it. Yeah, we could. It's a decision. Right. And and the issue of understanding that looking at it from the from the standpoint of when they made the decision to, to support the war. Did anybody stop and say, what's it going to look like in a year's time? Mm. You so know, think long term. Think, think, just just kind of put yourself in that, you know, where are we going to be in five years time if this carries on? Right. It's and, and what are the implications in the region back here in terms of the U.S.'s role in the world and its prestige and, and, and so forth? And then imagine if we actually took all of that power and became the force of good. Right. Became the the, the arbiter of genuine human rights, you know, not only political rights, but social and economic rights, became the voice of climate, you know, sort of addressing the climate change problems. The $110 billion that that we've just um, sold in weapons, I think about it in terms of like, okay, so a handful of probably not more than four or five American companies benefit Mm. from this, right? Now, imagine if you just take, if you take that $110 billion and thought about it in terms of U.S., assistance for economic and social mm-hmm. development, right. right? How many other companies in this country, forget, you know, let, let's say that we're not going to be altruistic about right. who we're helping, or how many other jobs right. could we have So here? you're saying if you're coming from a purely economic profit capitalist perspective, you get more bang for your buck. buck if you're supporting a peace if economy. If you're supporting a peace economy versus if yeah. you're supporting a And, and it's certainly a, a much wider range of sure. people here in America. Coca-Cola can't operate in Yemen right now. Exactly. Exactly. Raytheon can, but exactly, but Ex- not yeah. all the Johnson and Johnson or yeah, right. yeah, exactly. or the little you know mid you know company in the Midwest, yeah, that's, who wants to sell its corn to Yemen or whatever, whatever they want, whatever do, they right? want to do. Yeah. So, so just from that standpoint, it's like guys, let's let's think about the amount of wealth that you could create if we are actually in the business of a peace lobby as opposed to a war lobby. Then think about what how we would be actually helping people mm-hmm. on the ground mm-hmm. and what impact that would have in terms of just the yeah, as they say the the stat- status of the US, the the well and of course I'm being very very cynical when I think of cuz I'm like 
just think about the people over there. You know, we're bombing. They were living their lives. They were trying to make it work. We've enabled the complete devastation of a country um, that is a pretty ancient place. And to what end? I mean, these children are going to, they're still being born. It's still, you know, generation after generation of uneducated people. And we think it's not going to come back and hurt us. Yes. Of course it is. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS and all this All stuff. these other folks are going to come in and take advantage of it's, that. It's, yeah. they, they don't come out of a vacuum. They've come out of places and 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 policies, again, going back to the foreign policy question, that that was decided here for the benefit of a handful of people or for various ways that some some right. country some other country manipulated. And American the American public all, at right. some point ends up feeling And that's regardless of party, right? Those are those are yeah. things that are overlooked regardless of party, yeah. the long the long term view. And and something you, you said remind me of uh when you were at the panel at Brookings and you were talking about you being an, an Iranian and you said something along the lines of, you know, you're the result of failed American policy in Iran. And I thought no one has ever said that out loud. And it is the absolute truth in in a way. I mean, you turned out awesome. You're great. Um, But in a way, you you know, we we forget that these children grow up to be adults. Exactly. When I said that I'm a result of this policy, it's because in 1953, we had a Democratic leader and and they were trying to sort of take the country and and get rid of the British and, and so forth. And the Americans basically instigated and funded a coup, which brought back the Shah, which then 25 years later became... And know, then your and, family and so, had to flee. And, and, and so this whole arc of something that people here may not even be a blip in history was like an earthquake right. in, the, in the history of a nation. And as I say, the ripple, the blowback comes in 1979 when we have the hostage crisis, yes, right? Yes, yes. So it, everything is connected it's with each other. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And, and, and so, so, so we have to understand that. And, and especially with the U.S., the fact is the world is here as well, right? You have, we have such a diverse population. And I sometimes look at them like we have the best in the world right here, right? So if you want to figure out a policy on Nigeria, you probably have some of the most impressive Nigerians who can Absolutely. tell you what, what would be the right thing to do for Nigeria as well as the United States. As well as the United States. Correct. Right? I want to thank everyone for listening to What in the World in this conversation about Yemen. We only touched the surface. There's a lot to uh, take a look at. But if you're interested in learning about Yemen, what I encourage you to do is go to the ICANN website, ICANNPeaceWork.org. And also there's a great briefing that really helped me um, as I prepared for this show uh, with, with, with Sanam as the, as the lead author here. It's called Bringing Peace to Yemen by Having Women at the Table. And it was done by the U.S. Civil Society Working Group. I'll make sure I post it on Facebook and on Twitter. That's and, great. Thank um, you. So on and so forth. So people at least get the, the mm-hmm. gist of the basics of what's what's happening. Yeah. And they can also learn about the Women, Peace and Security Act that we have. Yes. So actually, the in a way, the supporting the Yemen war is breaking their own laws because the law says yes. you shouldn't be hurting. Yeah, them. we passed that last year, uh, right. last fall, I believe, yeah, in or October. October. Yeah, so in that anniversary is coming up. And so here we are. Yeah. Breaking it already. Breaking it. Breaking, <laughs> breaking it our already. own laws. So you can uh, catch What in the World at whatintheworldpodcast.com on Facebook, on Instagram now, finally posting pictures mm-hmm. of the world of foreign policy that's in our daily lives. So I take pictures of fun things. It's at WITW Pod on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Sanam, thank you so much again for, for being here, for sharing the time with us. And yes, the song that keeps you in a good mood. <laughs> when um, these stories just get out of control and and, uh, the world seems like a a crazy place. What is it for you? Oh, so many. But I think I I, I have to say I keep coming back to ABBA. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 
Um, I, I, I just, partly because it's my childhood and partly because I just find their songs are so happy. Even when they're sad, they're happy songs. <laughs> so whether it's uh, Dancing Queen or Super Trooper Dancing or Mamma Mia or whatever, whatever you want, um, those, they certainly go well, down, go down well. So those, yeah, all things from the 70s and 80s, uh, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm not very up with the latest. Uh, although I learned, I, I heard the name Drake, so I've, I've now oh learned that there's somebody Lord. called Drake out there. Yeah, there's a young gentleman called Drake out there in the world. He's, well, I have my thoughts about Drake, but this show is about you. Yeah. So. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, so thank, thank you, you again, much. and thank you all for listening to What in the World. Stay.